I pray this finds you having a blessed, wonderful day. We are getting ready to continue on in our study of the book of James. And we're going to continue with the topic and thought of showing favoritism. James is going to go a little bit deeper with it. Um, We're going to be looking at um, maybe a little bit different of a perspective of it that if we're not careful, somebody can take it out of context and you can use it. Um, That's one of the things that if uh, anybody's ever heard me uh, in teaching a class on how to study the Bible or anything, um, the word context is one that I use over and over and over. You cannot just take one verse out of the Bible and build a doctrine on it. Uh, (coughs) Well, I mean, you can, but it's usually a false doctrine. Um, You need to be able to take the whole entirety together, the context of it. And... James has started off this section here with favoritism that we talked about last week about how that sometimes we can we can end up showing this favoritism toward those who we think maybe has more money, better social status, look like us, dress like us, whatever it may be, and that that is not right for us to do. Well, he's going to take it a little step further. And again, this is where we can take the context uh, or we can take the verse out of context and use it in a way to be able to maybe support something um, that isn't necessarily there. So we're going to read verses 5 through 7, and we're probably going to get all the way down to verse 13 today. And we're going to look at this and just kind of dive in and see what James says. So reading verses 5 through 7 of chapter 2, James says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him. Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. All right. So I'm going to state the glaringly obvious here. James is not saying that God chooses poor people over rich people. And James is not saying that the poor will be saved more than the rich and that the rich will be condemned. All right? That can be taken in this. You can take it out of context by saying, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Okay. You can take that and you can say, yeah, poor people are... chosen by God, they're going to be saved. That's not necessarily at all what James is implying here. So we need to make sure and understand what James is talking about here. Remember, go back. James said, somebody comes walking into your synagogue or your church and looking all good and everything. You put them up in the front of everybody. Somebody who's poor comes in, you make them sit at your footstool. So he's using this contrast of the rich and the poor. And so he's continuing on in that idea of favoritism here, starting in verses 5. But he's not saying that God chooses poor people over rich people or that poor people are the ones that will be saved and rich people not. Now, here's one of the things, though, that we do need to understand. And... I can speak to this very significantly 
being that God has blessed me with the opportunity to serve in a lot of different situations and scenarios in mission work. I've been blessed to serve in Africa. I've served in numerous uh, situations and scenarios in Central America, served in Canada, was able while I was even in the military to, to serve and do many things while I was in South Korea. Here's one of the things that I can say is factual evidence. Poor and destitute people are more open to hearing about Jesus than people who are financially secure. That is an absolute fact. People who are poor and destitute are more open to hearing about Jesus than people who are financially secure. And here's why. In their poorness, they recognize their need for Jesus. Most people who are financially secure, and that's why I don't like using this word rich, because I think it just it, it, it's not necessarily just focusing on rich people. I think it's anybody who's financially secure, and here's why I'm going to say that. That's why right now, if you really understood the pulse of the preaching of Jesus Christ globally, it's thriving everywhere except America. And the reason being is because we are so financially secure. Most people are so financially secure. They have no need for Jesus. When, when you sit down and you realize <coughs> that when I would go into certain villages in Nicaragua and the majority of the people that were there would tell you that they have no idea where they're going to get their next meal and that when we would go in and we would make stew for them, that that was the only hot meal that most of them had had since the last time that the, the mission team had come in and done a hot meal. And that the majority of the children, you know, they hadn't eaten. And most of the people had no access to medical care. Most of them didn't even live on a dollar a day. It changes your dynamic. You know, when I sit down and realize what I am recording this podcast on, this iPad costs more than what a lot of these people will have monetarily in a whole entire year. That's not something we can compute. And, and see, here's the thing. Most of the time what happens is we have this whole idea out of sight, out of mind. So we just kind of live in our own day-to-day -day lives. And what we do is we sit down and we just kind of look at our situation. And because we don't have certain things, we deem ourselves less financially secure or more poor or uh, whatever terminology or verbiage you want to use. When in essence... Financially, monetarily, we are the wealthiest people 
some of the top 1% of wealthiest people in the world. The world does not live like most people do in the United States. Even what we would call your average median income kind of family, the family who lives paycheck to paycheck, is in the top 10% most wealthiest people in the world. But if you were to sit down and take those people who live paycheck to paycheck and ask them, do you feel wealthy? Do you feel like you're financially secure? Not one of them would say yes. And the reason they would not say yes is because of the lens in which they're looking at it from. We're looking at it through the lens of Western civilization, through Americanization, and according to American standards, you're probably not considered wealthy. But globally, you're considered in the top 10% most wealthy people in the world. And so the reason why that most people who would be considered financially secure don't see their need for Jesus is because they're not looking for him. All they're doing is looking how to make more money. All they're doing is looking how to be more financially secure. All they're doing is looking how to make sure that they can make just enough money to be able to do fill in the blank. That's why when you sit down and you ask somebody who is working themselves to death trying to make more money, how much more do you need just a little bit more? And the problem is, is when you sit down and think it's just a little bit more, it's always going to be just a little bit more. I remember that one of the times when we went to Nicaragua, we had somebody that went on this trip with us, and he was somebody who was very materialistic. He loved his toys. He made sure he had motorcycles and boats and campers, and he had all that. And I'm, again, I'm not preaching against that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying he was that kind of guy. He loved his toys. And when he went to Nicaragua, he was struggling something fierce. The first two days there, he just kept saying, what's wrong with these people? Don't they understand how poor they are? Don't they understand these things? And I remember that the guy who was uh, lead, he was the, uh, the missionary there. I remember he looked at him and he made this comment. He said, listen, the only reason that you see they're poor is because you're basing it off of what you have. These people don't know they're poor. You've come over to this country and you're looking at them and you see what they don't have based on what you do have and you've deemed them poor. But he said, they're happier than you. He said, you've been miserable the the, the two days you've been here. He said, you have been miserable. And he said, every time you go into one of these villages, he said, the people are laughing, they have smiles on their face. And he said, they're 10 times happier than you. Because he said, they have no idea that they're poor. But he said, you feel guilty because you have so much. Gosh! Let that one sit on you for a little bit. And see, that's the problem. That's what James is talking about here. We've let that same mentality come into the church. And so what we do is we see people that are affluent. We see people that have money. We see people that have financial status and social status. And we want them because we think we can get something from them. Rather than understanding it's not our job to get something from people, it's our job to give something to people, and that's Jesus. 
Our job as a church, as a body of believers, is not to gather people in so we can get stuff from them. Our job as a church and a body of believers is to go out and take Jesus to them. Man, we've got it so wrong. I've said this numerous times. The worst thing that ever happened to the church is we built buildings. If you go back to the book of Acts, they met in homes, they went out everywhere, the gospel was spreading like wildfire, and then all of a sudden we started building buildings, we started gathering inside the buildings, and when we gathered inside the buildings, we quit going outside the building. We quit taking Jesus to people and we started trying to bring people in and we reversed it and we started looking at it and saying, what can people give me rather than what can I give them? And so James is saying, and, it's, and again right here, this is in the early church. James is writing, very, it's not very far after Jesus has ascended. And James is already talking about the exact problem that I'm talking about right now. We built buildings. We've got people that are coming to church, coming to the synagogues, and we're already worried about having the most prestigious people here because it makes us look good. And I'm going to make a statement that may rub you the wrong way. But I tell you, tell me when I'm lying. Poor people don't cause problems in church. It's wealthy people. You don't find the poor people in the church arguing over the color of the carpet. You don't find poor people trying to seek out positions such as being a deacon or such as being Sunday school teachers or whatever it may be because they're looking for power and status. You don't find poor people being the ones who are the, the trying to get rid of the pastors or trying to do whatever it may be because... They don't care. They're just serving Jesus. What you find is the people who you have tried to bring in because of their social status, guess what you have to do? You have to stroke their egos. You have to bend the rules in order to accommodate them. You have to make sure that they recognize that they're being recognized. You have to make sure that you put them in positions to where they have say-so. Or otherwise, their little feelings get hurt. Or otherwise, they get upset and angry and they start threatening, don't they? I'm going to pull my money. I'm not going to tithe. I'm not going to give money to this if you don't do what I say. And guess what we do as a church? We buckle down to them. And we bow down to them because we need their money. We need their status. And what James is telling us right here is I hope you realize when you start playing favorites, there's consequences to it. When you start bending down to bow down to these people that have social status and have financial status, there's consequences to it. Now, here, I'm not preaching against wealthy people. I'm just stating facts. Poor people are more receptive to the gospel Go ask anybody who has preached in a foreign country, preached in Central America, Africa, wherever it may be, go ask them, are people in foreign countries more receptive to the gospel than preaching on Sunday mornings? Every single one of them will absolutely and resoundingly say yes. 
Every time I go on a mission trip, I'm telling you, I come back home and whatever church I'm serving in and whatever area I'm serving in, the first thing I do is go, oh my goodness, this place is so cold-hearted. Because I've just been to an area where I am preaching the gospel and people are literally coming out by the droves in order to hear the gospel message because they want hope. They want Jesus. Here... You try to preach on Sunday morning and you got more people worried about the fact that you preached for 45 minutes rather than 40 minutes and that you went over and you messed up their golden corral time. And they never even heard your sermon anyway because half of them are asleep. But boy, they checked that box to say, I went to church today. Because that's what it is in America. It's not about receiving Jesus. It's not about making sure that you are able... <clears throat> to grow in your walk with Christ. No, no, no. It's about looking the part. It's about being an American Pharisee. And so again, I'm not saying that God chooses poor people over rich people. I'm telling you, poor people are more receptive to the gospel because they recognize their need and they re recognize... They don't have anything else other than Jesus. And then they here's the other thing. They find out Jesus is enough, and that's why they want him so much. The problem we have in America is that our money can do whatever we need it to do. This is the statement that I made, and again, tell me when I'm lying. Right now, the reason that churches are dead is not because God isn't moving, not because the gospel isn't being preached, not because the Holy Spirit isn't moving. It's because we aren't praying because we don't need to. Our money and our status can solve every problem other than sickness. You go to the doctor and you're stricken with cancer. That's about the only time you're going to come and ask for prayer. And there are certain people that won't even do that because they have enough money to go to certain doctors that they believe can be able to heal them. So they're still putting all of their, 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 their hope and their faith in their money. We don't need God for anything in America today. In the American church, we, need, we do not need God for anything. We don't need the Holy Spirit. The statement has been made by a couple different people, so I don't know who to give credit to. But here's one of the statements that was made. If, the, if God took away the Holy Spirit, the majority of churches in America today would still worship every Sunday morning and never even know it. Because everything they're doing, they're producing themselves and they don't need the Holy Spirit to produce it. That's the difference of what James is talking about here in the sense of poor people being receptive to the gospel and wealthy people not. Wealthy people... Financially secure people don't need Jesus. I'm telling you right now, if you were to go over, and I'm just going to tell you, it's even in, even in our own church. We have prayer meetings on Wednesday night, and I'm telling you, we show up, and I'm, I'm usually one of the only ones who is given prayer requests. There's maybe one or two other people that will give prayer requests, but the majority of the people that are sitting there don't open their mouth the whole entire time. They don't have any prayer requests, and they never ask prayer for themselves. And even when you ask, will you pray, no one will pray. Because we don't need to. Prayer 
for the American church is just like going to going to church. It's a checkbox. I prayed today. I think it was Francis Chan made this statement. He said, if God said yes to every one of the prayers we prayed, our food would be blessed, our family would be safe, but nobody would be saved, the kingdom wouldn't be advanced, and the world wouldn't be a different place. He said, because all we do is we pray for God to just make sure He blesses us, and that's it. We're not asking for God to change us. We're not asking for God to grow our faith. We're not asking God to open up doors of ministry for us. We're not asking God to do anything because we don't need Him. And so what we're doing is in the American church, we're showing favoritism over and over and over by making sure that all we do is get people in that we know have a good name, we know have social status, and we know have finances. In the ministry, as long as I've been, I, don't, I, I can't tell you how many times that I've had deacons and I've had church leaders and everybody else threaten me by saying, if you don't do what we want, we're going we're gonna to pull our money back. Do you think that I need your money in order for God to move? I don't. And I'll tell them that. You can take your money and go find that door over there and walk out of it because we don't need you. If that's the mentality in which you want to come with. And what you realize is money is their God, not Jesus. When someone makes a statement like that, I'm telling you right now, money is their God, it is not Jesus in any way, shape, form, or fashion. And that's where we're at in the American church right now is we believe that our money means everything. And that's scary. Because here's the thing, what would you do if you didn't have money? Let me tell you one of my most favorite church services that I remember. And I'm going to tell you right now, I don't know of really many people that you could sit down and say at the church where I pastor or churches around the area or churches that I've been in or any church in America who would sit down and say that this was a great church experience. This was in the middle of Nicaragua. It was just a building. It didn't have it just had open windows. There was no glass whatsoever. There was no screens. It was just open windows. Anything could come in. They had one ceiling fan in the middle of there and it was hot. Oh man, it was hot. And the if you want to call the sanctuary there, it was just basically an open room. It was full of praying mantises. And the whole time that that ceiling fan was going, you heard ding, 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 because the praying mantises were bouncing off of the ceiling fan. And you know what? Not one single person, even though they had praying mantises all over the floor, they had bugs everywhere, people had bugs crawling on them, not one single person was sitting there swatting themselves. Not one person was sitting there complaining. They were locked in as I was preaching the Word of God. I was dumbfounded. Because I sit here and I preach this past Sunday and I had five people asleep in the sanctuary this past Sunday. I saw them. 
And if you're listening to this podcast and you've under my preaching and you're sleeping, listen, I see you every single time. Do you know how disrespectful that is? But we don't care. Because again, we're just checking a box. We're not there for Jesus. We're not there because we want our lives to be changed. We're not there because we are in desperate need to receive a word from God. We're not. (laughs) I can still remember that church service today. I still remember the inside of that sanctuary. I still see all of those bugs all over the place and not one single person cared. If it's raining outside, nobody wants to come to church. If it's cold outside, nobody wants to come to church. If the heat pump's broke, nobody wants to come to church. If I woke up and I've got a little ache this morning, I don't want to come to church. If I woke up and I got a headache, I don't want to come to church. We find more reasons not to go. Why? Because we're so financially secure, we don't need Jesus. That's what James is teaching us here. Because notice what he says here. He says, Yet you have dishonored the poor in verse 6. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you to court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? What he's saying is, don't you realize that a lot of these people that are so wealthy that you have and, and have such status that you have begged to come to your church are the same ones that take you to court and sue you? Why? Because that's what they're all about. He said, look at what they're doing. They're not here for Jesus. They're not here. They're here to make a name for themselves. It's not about Jesus. And we sit down and we ask this question, then what, what are we doing? What are we doing in America right now? What we're having is glorified social clubs, not church. That's the problem, what we're having in America today. We don't want to hear the gospel. We don't want to preach again. We don't want to preach on sin. We don't want to mention the word hell. We don't want to talk about surrender. We don't want to talk about what it means to be a disciple. We don't want to talk about what it means to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Him. We just want to talk about love and blessings. We just want to make sure that everybody feels good when they leave. We want to make sure that everybody's ego is stroked. We want to make sure that those who need to make sure that they're lauded and that their status is approved and that people recognize them and they have power and authority that we we, we, we push that. We're not there because we want to see heaven more crowded and the kingdom expanded. James goes on here in verses, starting in verse 8, he said, Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Look what else he says there. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin. So what he's telling us is here, favoritism is not just something that we might consider a social faux pas. He says showing favoritism is sin. Look how he continues to address it. 
For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit or do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you are a lawbreaker. So he's telling you this. He says, Jesus told you, love your neighbor as yourself. But if all you're doing is showing favoritism to other people, guess what you've sinned? And it's no different than if the, the law says, do not commit adultery and do not murder, but yet you murder. Even if you didn't commit adultery, because you murdered, you broke the law. So he's saying, here's the thing. Favoritism is the same way. You can sit down and do all kinds of other things, but if you start showing favoritism to somebody, you're as guilty sinning as anything else or anybody else. What Jesus is referring to here is the great commandment in Matthew chapter 22. When he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I want you to think about this. John goes even more personal with this in the book of 1 John. Listen to what he says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love God does not know God because God is love. So what John is saying is this. If you claim to know God and claim to love God, then you have to love like God because God is in you, God dwells in you, and God must love through you. So it, what, what John is saying to kind of piggyback off of this is if you're claiming that you love Jesus but yet you're showing favoritism, you're not showing the love of God. Listen to what Warren Wearsby said. Christian love does not mean that I must like a person and agree with them on everything. Christian love means treating others the way God has treated me. Great. Dave, what a statement. See, we've got this idea that we have to be tolerant. No, I don't. I don't have to tolerate you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to make a statement that you probably may not like. I don't have to like you. I have to love you, but I don't have to like you. I don't have to spend time with you. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that I have to like you and I have to spend time with you. What the Bible does say is that I have to love you and your soul enough to share Jesus with you because I care so much for you, I don't want you to go to hell. Now, you may look at it and say, well, now, Jeremiah, that, that's just, you know, that's wrong in every way. There's no way you can love me and not like me. Absolutely. I can love you enough to make sure that you know the message that you need to hear in order for you to be saved. But I don't have to like you. I don't have to like your attitude. I don't have to like your demeanor. I don't have to like any of that. And here's why. Because what you're doing could be sinful. Now, I'm hoping that the gospel will change you. But if you are someone who shows favoritism to other people, I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to hang around you. Because I don't care for that. If you're somebody that is in the local church and you need me to stroke your ego to tell you how awesome you are and you need to for, for me to, to make sure that I put you in a position of status because of your financial security and because of your social standing, I'm going to tell you, I ain't going to have much to do with you because I don't see any of that biblically. But I am going to share the gospel with you and I am going to love you enough to try to point you to Christ as much as I can. 
Here's what Wiersbe continues to say. He said, Christian love means treating others the way God treated me. It is an act of the will, not an emotion that I try to manufacture. How did God love me unconditionally? He loved me enough to die in my place because I needed salvation. And guess what? He didn't let me stay the way I was. See, the gospel should change you. And if you're someone who is sitting down and telling me that you love Jesus, but yet you have to have yourself elevated in status, have you been changed? If you're somebody that needs to be recognized all the time because of your finances or because of your social standing or because of anything of that nature, have you really been changed? Because, see, here's the thing. When you get saved, the gospel humbles you. When you get saved, the gospel causes you to live in surrender. When you get saved, you understand that it's not about you, it's about Him and He's Lord. When you get saved and you start understanding grace and mercy, you start realizing you don't deserve nothing and it doesn't matter how much money you have or what your social standing is, you are nothing apart from the grace that Jesus has given you. And there's a lot of people that serve in local churches that love them some them. And there's a lot of people that serve in local churches that think that things rise and fall on them. Let me tell you something. God can move those people out the way in a heartbeat if He chooses to. And there's times He's done it. Because they don't realize they are hindering the advancement of the kingdom. That's a scary place to be in. As a matter of fact, I say it this way. We had a saying when we lived in Virginia, I wouldn't be in your shoes for your shoelaces. And that's the, that's the idea. Showing favoritism is as much a sin as committing murder. Now, the consequences are different, but it's still sin. Look in verse 12. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The statement that James is using here in verse 12 is telling the people to live under the freedom of grace and mercy that they receive from Jesus and not under the law. Remember what Warren Wiersbe said? Christian love means treating others the way that God has treated me. I don't deserve grace and mercy. Jesus gave it to me freely. Guess what? The people you're around don't deserve grace and mercy. But you're to give it to them freely. Why? Because you got it freely. That's why we, we are not to show favoritism. Jesus did not show favoritism. He said the gospel is for all. The gospel is not for the rich. The gospel is not for the poor. So why is it that we make the gospel for certain people? Why do we make our church for certain people? Why do we look at it and say, well, we only want affluent people. Or we only want people with status. Or we only want people with this. Why is... The church, our church, your church, not for all people. Maybe it's because the fact that we've never been truly radically saved by the gospel ourselves, if that's what we're pushing. If our agenda is to push in order to get people of status, if our agenda is to push people that are financially secure or the good old boy in the area, or someone who is prominent in the community. Is that really what we see Jesus doing? I don't think so. 
aren't we supposed to model what Jesus has done? Yeah. Is the church I serve really modeling what Jesus teaches? Is the church you're serving in really modeling that? See, that's a question I think we need to ask. When James is talking about mercy here, he's not teaching that we earn mercy by showing mercy. When he says judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. He's not teaching that mercy (coughs) is earned by showing mercy to others. What it means is that when we rest in the mercy we receive from Jesus, we're going to show it to other people. Here's a better way of saying it. When you recognize who you are in Jesus, you start living and treating and acting that way towards other people. Let me say it a different way. When you recognize you were dead in your sins and you could offer Jesus absolutely nothing and He made you alive in Christ, you realize that whatever finances you have, whatever social standing you have, whatever prominence you have, whatever your last name means, it means absolutely nothing when it comes to your salvation and it comes to the grace that you've received and mercy you've received. See, here's here's where I want to end this. You say, Jeremiah, why are you so passionate about this? Because here's the one thing that I want us to understand. Do you realize that by showing favoritism within the local church, within the American church, by us doing things the way that we're doing it, do you realize that we are modeling the exact opposite of what Jesus taught? Do you know why unsaved people hate church? Do you know why unsaved and unchurched people don't want to come to church? It's because what we're showing them is not what Jesus teaches in Scripture. They see when, they, when, when unsaved and unchurched people call the church hypocritical, they're 100% accurate. You know why? Because what they're doing is they're telling us this. You all preach love, but you don't show it. You preach acceptance, but you don't show it. You preach that all are welcome, but you don't show it. You teach that the gospel is for all, but you don't go do it. You teach that we're to serve everyone, but you don't go do it. You teach that it doesn't matter who you are, come as you are, but you don't really mean it. What they're doing, the unsaved and unchurched people are pointing out loudly and clearly that the American church today is not what we say. We're not truly following Jesus the way we need to. When we act this way compared to what we're saying behind the pulpit or what we're teaching or what we're putting on our church signs. When we say, come as you are, do we really mean that? Do we really mean that someone can come in dressed however that they want to? Do we mean that someone can come in in any skin color, any ethnicity, Do we really mean that someone could come in and they could have piercings all over their body, tattoos all over their body? Do we really mean that? Or if someone come in and they had ears pierced and they had their nose and their lips and their their tongue pierced and they had a beer logo t-shirt on and they had jeans that had holes all in it 
Are you telling me you would accept them and you would love them like anybody else or would you tell me that you would stare a hole through them the whole entire church service? That's what unsaved and unchurched people are telling us. Because we're not really accepting. Because we look at it and say, oh, you know what? You're coming into God's house and you need to be dressed a certain way. They're not saved and they don't know that. You know what we're trying to do? We're trying to clean the fish before we get them in the boat. We're trying to make sure that what we do is tell people you need to be saved and act saved before you're saved. That's not what the gospel teaches. We're looking at people and telling them, you better get your morality right before you come to church. You're not supposed to look like that, be dressed like that. You're not supposed to do anything. Really? Did Jesus ever walk up to anybody and tell them, you know what, now you better get your life right before you start coming around me. You better make sure that you stop cussing. You better make sure that you dress right. You better make sure that you quit those bad habits that you got. No, Jesus just loved them and took the gospel to them. He accepted people where they were. He loved people for who they were. Because the Bible says, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Christ loved me while I was a sinner. He didn't love my sin, but he loved me as a sinner. And he loved me enough to extend grace and mercy to me and salvation to me and make sure that the gospel reached me. Rather than trying to tell me to get good before the gospel got a hold of me. Maybe we show favoritism way more than we think. Maybe in our day-to-day lives, we show favoritism with those around us more than we think. In our churches, I know we show favoritism more than we think. And so the real question is this. If James said showing favoritism is sin, do we really recognize it as sin? And what are we trying to do to clean it up and make sure that we're repentant of it and not doing it anymore? Or do we even care? That's the real question. Do we even care? Do we see it as a problem? Do we see it as something that is causing unsaved and unchurched people not to want to have anything to do with us? So I pray this has been a challenge. I pray this is it. At the same time, I pray it's encouraged you. Because see, you can be encouraged by being challenged and you can be encouraged even whenever you realize, you know what, I got sin in my life. That's encouraging because it gives me an opportunity to repent and to get myself right with God and gives me an opportunity then to use that as a ministry moment for somebody else to say, hey, listen, I too fell prey to that sin and I too was doing wrong. But you know what? I got convicted of it. I repented of it and God cleaned me up and God put me on the right path and now I'm wanting to share with you that it's not right to do what that, what I was doing or what you're doing. Favoritism is wrong. Favoritism is a sin and it's something that's got to be addressed. So I pray if this has been an encouragement and a challenge to you, share this podcast with somebody. Tell them, hey, check it out and listen. Leave a review and a rating on whatever you listen to so that way it'll get out there a little bit more. Also, just want to remind you, if you're looking for a book to read that's real simple on spiritual warfare, I've written a book called The Reality of the Enemy. 
You can be able to get it off Amazon or you can go to barnesandnoble.com and get it. And uh, it's a really short read. The chapters are really short, so that way you could even use it as a morning devotion if you wanted to. I encourage you to get that if you're struggling with spiritual warfare, if you need some help in being able to understand how that the enemy's tactics are coming against you. I pray that this finds you with having a blessed rest of the day. I pray that you put into practice some of these things and don't go out and show favoritism to people. Go out and love them. Love them enough to share the gospel with them. And we look forward to seeing you back in the book of James later on this week as we get into our next podcast. <laughs>